You've joined the Betamax Video Club, rewinding back to our favourite films of the 1980s. My name's Rich Nelson, and tonight I've rented Beverly Hills Cop. Watching it with me is David Hartrick from Beyond the Touchline podcast. Hi David, how are you? Yeah, very good mate, very good. Very excited about this one. We did Rocky Four, and that's that. That's just an eternal film. That stands in a little pantheon on its own. But this is like, personally, this is, honestly, I love this film, adore this film. I'm furious that I can't do two, because it, is it Dotman who's put his name down? It is, two? yeah. Yeah, I'll fight you for that one. I, I fought long and hard, and because this is episode 50 of the podcast, and I thought long and hard about which film, and I thought I need to do a good one, um, and some of the other ones, and this sounds awful, but um, <laughs> Bev- Beverly Hills Cop is one of those that when I started doing the podcast, I mean, which films I want to do, this is one of the proper 80s movies that I remember growing up and watching when I was far too young. What's so special about it for you? I I think because it was... It's a very similar story, really. I remember watching it when I was nowhere near old enough. Um, Watching it on VHS as well, not watching the really badly dubbed version on... I I think it premiered on BBC first and then moved to ITV after a couple of years and ITV repeated it about seven or eight times. And I I think the thing about this film... For me, it always comes back to the same thing, and that's just Eddie Murphy is just incredibly charismatic on in this film. There is something about him in this film that feels like lightning in a bottle that I think some of his other performances don't quite capture, don't quite get. It's it's like they've managed to get the sort of real essence of Eddie Murphy and put it into a character that they can wrap a story around and it just he just feels so natural i mean i don't want to skip all the way to the end straight away but like the last frame of this film where he's in the car and he tells him he knows a place to go for a, a drink at the end even in that sort of couple of seconds there's just so much charisma just like bleeding at you from the screen it's just incredible and i know like eddie murphy is a slightly problematic bloke on lots and lots of levels but at this point he just looked like just a megastar you know an absolute megastar in waiting and we'll get into the like mechanics of the film itself it's it's also when you are watching it when you're too young as we did it's also a very simple film to follow. It's a very, very simple story. You know exactly who the bad guys are. You know who the good guys are. It, it's, yeah, I, I just, I genuinely think it, again, there are lots of films from the 80s that you sort of go back and people say they like ironically and all this sort of thing. This is actually a good film. Mm. You know, this is actually a very, very nice way to spend a hundred odd minutes. And... <laughs> I don't think I've seen it as many times as I've seen Rocky Four, but I tell you what, I bet it's, I bet genuinely, I bet it's not so far off. Well, I say I'm, I'm very much in the same boat. I mean, I watched it, well, admittedly in two parts over last night and this morning, and I hadn't seen it for at least two or three years because it always used to be one that I'd happily have on. You know, you stick possibly with Rocky Four. You know, you, you turn it on, you come through it halfway through, and you end up watching it to the end. Beverly Hills Cop is one that I always prefer to sit down and watch from beginning to end. But Eddie Murphy and this—we've talked about it very basically when we did the Trading Places episode. In this period, the, you know, the eighties, when he was just—he was electric, and everything about this film. While the plot's quite tight, it's not. There's no padding really. There's no parts we think well, we could, you could afford to lose that here and there. He makes this film on another planet because when you look at some of the the trivia and the Wikipedia and you see some of the stories that this was apparently aimed at Sylvester Stallone at one point, yeah. and and you kind of think like, imagine that film. And bear in mind this was Stallone '84, so between Rocky three and four, and trying to play that comedy. This is as much comedy as action because of Eddie Murphy. Yeah. And it just would have been completely different. And obviously it's hypothetical, but Murphy takes this from probably an average sort of six out of ten movie and pushes it right up the top. The other thing he does is he, he takes basically about three quarters of an hour worth of story and turns it into a full film and it never once drags or slows or you never feel the slack anywhere. But there was it was also offered to Mickey Rourke, wasn't it? Mm. And it was, at one point, 
this wasn't a comedy film, was it? It was a very straight action film. And I think, I remember reading this ages ago, the shootout at the end at Maitland's house actually made up like about half the film. It it almost became like a, a siege thriller halfway through. So, and I can I can sort of see the nuts and bolts of that, but... I mean, what we've actually got here with Eddie Murphy is just... its it, That doesn't sound like a film I'd want to watch, no. you know? Mickey Rourke fighting his way through a mansion trying to get to a weirdo dressed in a <laughs> toweling robe. You know, that it's just not something I, I want to... I've seen that film so many times before. Whereas this really... I mean, I don't want to use the expression again, but it does feel a little bit lightning in a bottle. And... Like two, Beverly Hills Cop Two is not as good as Beverly Hills Cop One, but it still has a lot of the same touchstones. It still has a lot of the same humour. It still has Murphy on like top form, and the three hander, if you like. So Eddie Murphy, Judge Reinhold, and John Ashton as Rosewood and Taggart. That little threesome shouldn't work, mm. but it really does because of Murphy. Because Murphy knows. In a funny sort of way, he knows not to draw the humour from the really obvious places where they jar, and he's actually quite a bit more subtle than that, which is an odd word to say when you think about Eddie Murphy's career, really. <laughs> but, yeah, it's just... I mean, it, it is genuinely just a good film, and I think people... A lot of people will have watched Beverly Hills Cop a long time ago and sort of gone, oh yeah, it's alright, and sort of dismissed it. When you go back to it, it really does stand the test of time as well, I think it'd be fair to say. Yeah, because one of the things that tend to cover in some of the episodes is how has the film aged? I mean, bear in mind, this film's 35 years old. Fuck, yeah. Fucking hell. Um, <laughs> and you think there's very little in there. I mean, he uses the, the N-word, I think, once, which for Eddie Murphy and some of his stand-up routines is essentially nothing yeah but other than that i mean there's there's very little in there i mean there's hardly any mention of the fact that he's black which makes it instantly more relevant for now because it could be transferable as you know a comedy actor or or anything yeah and i suppose if you know people who perhaps grew up on eddie murphy's later films are probably wondering which other roles did he play he actually only played one which is nice (laughs) (laughs) but he um I think the other thing it's worth sort of pointing out about this film is that, like, story-wise, it is simple. And there's no point either of us trying to say, you know, this is like some great who done it or anything like that. It is a really simple story, but the, pay- the, the thing I come back to, the pacing of this film is just about right, because as somebody who's seen it as many times as I have, it's like for a film that is is coming on i mean it's close to two hours i think it's about 100 odd minutes isn't it it absolutely whips by absolutely zips by there's never a lull in it at all and we've spoken now for a good what is it i mean how long we've been talking a good 10 minutes Mm. or so and not once have we said the words harold or fulton (laughs) and if you take all the things we've talked about and then drop in that soundtrack on top and that that everybody knows the tune, Axel F, but the soundtrack in general is again it's just really unironically good. Mm. It's just, it, it fits the film, it works for the time, and it's got this sort of main theme that obviously went on to have a life way beyond you know I mean everything from the crazy frog to like God knows what it's 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 had a tremendous life the main theme for the film. But it is genuinely good, isn't it? Yeah, and it and it plays. It's not overdone because you hear parts of it as perhaps a transition from one scene to mm. another. It plays. It's almost like his background theme as he walks along doing Axel Foley stuff. But it's not over. It's not in your face. There are sort of slight variations to it, so it's not the constant thing. And the weird thing is, is that and this kind of threw me that I forgot is that it's not what the film opens to. Because the film no. opens to the heat is on. Yeah. And not this. And that's when you kind of think, oh, okay, because perhaps had they done the opening as well, people might have got tired of it a little bit. But yeah. 35 years on, people hear that instantly. And it's the theme tune. It's the, the name of the theme tune is the main character. And you all know what it is. Yeah. That opening is worth talking about. That opening. It's that I maintain that's one of the best openings to a film I've ever seen. Weirdly, I. Because when I did the episode about Flashdance last <laughs> summer, and 
and because this was produced by Simpson and Bruckheimer as well, and it was only a year afterwards, and it came up on talking to, to James King about it, and that was very similar in that it was looking at Pittsburgh in, in that case, and this is Detroit, but it was very slightly similar themes, and I'm not going to say that these two are companion pieces in any way. Uh, <laughs> but the fact that... Um, it goes around showing, and probably the intention, that Detroit is its an industrial city and these are the people who live there. It doesn't sugarcoat it too much. It's, you know, and it's not that different from trading places in that when they're going around New York saying, this is the, these are the rich lot and these are the poor lot. We don't need to make your mind up for you. I quite like an opening to a film that just chucks you into it. Mm. Like in the first, I, I'd maintain, I reckon, in the first maybe nine minutes of this film, you basically learn everything you need to learn about Axel and his character and his personality. You don't need to know anybody, anything else going forward in the film. That's some doing when you think about it. And I don't want to credit the filmmakers perhaps with sort of subtleties and nuance that I don't think they were probably going for. But again, to labour the point, I think a lot of it comes back to Murphy, you know, and just him being able to sort of inhabit this character, which, let's be honest, is a, a good 60% Eddie Murphy, isn't yeah. it? You know, they haven't written him a character way out of his comfort zone. But the remaining 40%, he fleshes out absolutely brilliantly. And yeah, that, that opening chucks you into the film... Then, obviously, you get immediately into the story because his friend's broken into his... I can't remember the name of his friend. Mickey Trevino. Yes, that's it. No, Tandino, Tandino. isn't it? Yeah. So, again, it's off. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't hang around at all. It's off. And I I sort of miss that. In I went to see Avengers Endgame at the weekend, this very weekend. And I quite enjoyed it. But there are, like good sort of 10 to 15 minute stretches of that film where nothing much is actually happening mm. and there's no real sort of economy in the filmmaking and I sort of miss these 80s films made for that sort of 15 to 30 million dollar budget where there was like a real economy it was right we're, we're going to tell you a story and it's going to whip by in a flash and we're going to throw every pound note we've got at the screen you know we're leaving nothing behind and this this like i say the pacing of this film is just great because it just chucks you in and then you're away really i think that the film really gets going obviously when he goes to beverly hills when he's he's chasing stephen burkoff's uh victor maitland who has been set up as the bad guy and it's worth just talking about his wardrobe for a minute mate isn't it he's very dapper it's there's there's a grey outfit he wears that I still don't know what it is whether it's a jacket a jumper a jumpsuit a dressing gown do you know the one I mean yeah he plays a art dealer who no spoiler here, he turns out is involved in the smuggling of drugs and bearer bonds and all sorts German bearer bonds yeah I mean that's sort of a bearer diehard but he kind of goes you know, we know from the beginning, and basically every film Stephen Burkoff has ever been in, he is a villain of some sort. I mean, having recently done Octopus, he was in that, he was in Rambo 3. He's always a villain because he's so bloody good at it. And, you know, you rate his performances in how many Burkoffs out of 10. <laughs> That's an excellent scale. <laughs> and in this one, he wasn't even, you know, shouting decadent or anything else. The West is decadent but he was menacing in a way and, and the part where he is threatening when he interviews i say interviews jenny around axel foley's movements but he mm. always looks like you know he's the guy who dines at the harrow club with a yeah. buffet and everything about him just screams i'm considerably richer than yao yeah <laughs> i i've seen stephen burkoff in that we were we had a family holiday years and years ago and we went to la and we stayed in Pasadena. We did all the touristy things. Mm. And I would have been about... I reckon I'd have been about 15, 16 at the time. And we were there for the entire time. And as this kid from Brighton, who then moved up to Huddersfield, that nothing exciting ever happens, this family holiday where we went to Hollywood, 
I was expecting to like casually just bump into everyone. You know, I thought I'd be, I'd be coming home like pen pals with all sorts of stars, and we just didn't see anyone. And then on, I think it was like second or third last day, we went out for breakfast, and Stephen Burkoff was sitting outside in this cafe where we were having breakfast, and I recognised him instantly from this film, but I was obviously only sort of like I say, I reckon fourteen, fifteen at the time. Camera phones weren't a thing that existed. <laughs> yeah. uh, so it was just a case of, oh, bloody hell, there's Stephen Burkhoff. And I sort of observed him for half an hour while he had a coffee and a croissant uh, in the sunshine, reading his paper. And it was so... I mean, I hate to say this for somebody in real life, but it seemed so out of character to see him being human. <laughs> <laughs> and to see him being nice and to see him chatting with a waiter and to see him leaving a tip you just sort of had to assume that he was about to get into a car with a boot full of cocaine and go and you know drop it off at a racetrack and then go and watch the races from a box somewhere in a very sharp suit it was an odd experience was was he dressed normally he was he was in a i think if i remember rightly he was in shorts and t-shirt which again is not what you want to see him in you, yeah. If you if you see Stephen Burkoff, you want to see the full Burkoff, don't you? <laughs> but there, there's yeah, he's there's one or two sharp outfits in this, but there's that grey outfit. It just looked like somebody's just thrown a load of fabric at him. It's bizarre. He's got a shirt and tie, and yeah, it does look like a robe over it, as though he's making some sort of fashion statement. It's like it's sort of half. It's like somebody's seen a kimono. And somebody's seen a dress suit and thought, do you know what? Do you know what no one's ever done? <laughs> and it's it just, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. But he's hes great in this film. I mean, there's a lot of scenery chewing going on at times, isn't there? And that was one of the complaints I think some people had about Octopussy the year before, and that he was one of the villains in that, but didn't really get a lot of screen time. Mm. Um, you know, he was the Soviet general who shouted a lot, but wasn't in it very much. And perhaps the movie was lesser for it. It's octopusy though, so it's still good. Yeah, of course it but, is. Yeah, I mean this one, you know, when and the, the part where they're in Detroit, um, obviously Mikey's come to see Axel, and Axel kind of indicates that you know he was a bit of a how can we put it scamp before he joined yeah. the police. You know, there was talk about the various scrapes that they got up to. He's turned up with a paper bag full of German bearer bonds. <laughs> Yeah. They they go up at, they go out on the piss with these bearer bonds, and then come back and they get uh, ambushed by Mike from Breaking Bad and another unnamed goon, executed in a hallway, and uh, and off we pop. Yeah, it's do you know I never through eighties films bearer bonds were always these things that I knew were incredibly valuable, and that bad guys had them or wanted to steal them. But to this day, I still don't really know what they are. I, I always had the vision that they were just some sort of like like a traveller's check or something. And I don't know, <laughs> m- maybe technology is advanced or something and you don't need them because you can just wire stuff so easily. But Yeah, there was a... There was a I don't think it's this film. There was a film, maybe Die Hard, it maybe something else, where they actually show a stack of bearer bonds hmm. and they just look like a stack of swimming certificates. And I thought, well, why are they why are they fighting over a load of pieces of paper saying they've died for a brick in their pajamas? You know, it, like I, as I said, to this day, I still don't really know what they are. But I'm I'm quite a sort of blissful ignorance. I don't think I want to know what they are. I just quite like them being these mythical bits of paper that bad guys fight for. That's fine by me. I don't need any more than that. Because I am interested in the $640 million in negotiable bearer bonds that you have locked in your vault. They are the MacGuffin, it's fine. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, as it turns out, they are sort of only partly the MacGuffin because he's like, he's a massive cocaine dealer. It's basically how he's laundering his money effectively, isn't it, in these bearer bonds? Yeah. So I think we should probably touch on it as we're moving into the sort of the Beverly Hills section, there is one female character in this film who gets absolutely nothing to do and ends up being a damsel in distress. Yeah. That's not great by modern standards, but this is an 80s film, and that's what 80s films did. I mean, it's just incredible that she didn't appear topless at any point, really. 
that that was probably a deleted scene because um, <laughs> I think the only other females you see in the film are either strippers or the ones when he's driving down sort of Rodeo Drive. Yeah, you know, and yeah. There's like one walking a dog and there's two walking together, aren't there? And all that sort of thing, yeah. Again, not great by modern standards, but this was, I mean, this was 1984, wasn't it? It's, uh, it's how it was. Yeah, I mean, and then you get you get Surge in the art oh. gallery as sort of basically every gay and homosexual cliche you can possibly think of chucked into one character. And again, it's not great. It's not great. That is that is part of the film that hasn't aged particularly well. I see you look at this base. Yeah, I was wondering how much something like this went for. $130,000. Get the fuck out of here! No, I cannot. It's serious because it's very important base. Have you ever sold one of these? Sell it yesterday to a collector. Get the fuck no, out of here! Somebody else has said it myself. <laughs> but again, you do have to think about a little bit of context slightly and you sort of have to be thankful that it's you know, things have moved on, really. Yeah, because, I mean, he's basically, or Serge, you know, he's basically a prototype of Bruno, you know, the Sasha yeah. Baron Cohen one. He's, I mean, it's easy to go back and see the part where Axel blags the hotel room by saying he's writing an article for Rolling Stone about Michael Jackson. <laughs> Obviously, if he'd gone in there now, you know, in 2019, saying that, he'd probably get thrown out, but... <laughs> <it's>, uh... <laughs> yeah, things move on, don't they? Yeah. Times change, and we'll just... I think we'll just draw a veil over the Michael Jackson chat there before your podcast gets physically taken off iTunes and you're in all sorts of legal trouble. Yeah, I had to change the end of the For Your Eyes Only episode. Um, <laughs> the, I mean, I wonder if that blag for the hotel actually works. I wonder how many people actually went and tried it. I mean, I can't imagine it would work nowadays in a, a travel lodge. No, but again, I th- like. I feel like I'm repeating myself a lot really on this podcast, but again, that whole scene works just because of the pure the energy mm. and the charisma of Murphy again, doesn't it? It's it's I wonder with scenes like this in the, this film, I wonder how much of that was written down and yeah. how much was just Eddie Murphy goes up to the counter and blags himself a hotel room. You know, just do what you want, Eddie. That was probably part of the of a routine he'd done or something. Because I I looked at the the IMDb trivia. I try not to dwell too much on it, but a lot of the scenes between Foley, Rosewood, and Taggart were either improv or ad libbed. And the part where Rosewood and Taggart are on the stakeout and they're talking about the the undigested meat sketch and apparently that was basically their audition for the film was they were told to they were given a magazine and told to improv a sketch about basically pretending to be an old married couple which they really are yeah yeah certainly not judge judge reinald in this film again is really good isn't he he's very funny i every time i see it i have sort of forgotten how many good lines billy rosewood gets and he plays it in that sort of i say naive but you know, Beverly Hills police are sort of laid out to be, and and Foley calls them robots. Yeah, and he's certainly the most human of them. And the the way they sort of frame the Beverly Hills department is that it's this very slick operation that is mostly dealing in petty crime, essentially. That sort of major crime is is something that happens relatively uh, relatively rarely. Whereas Axel has always been framed as this is all he deals with basically you know it's he's just lurching from one major drug dealer to murder to you know whatever so billy comes that i like the way that they play billy as this sort of over enthusiastic childlike almost in a funny sort of way almost like massive fan of 80s movies mm. Even though this is like filmed in 1983 and released in 84, he is sort of set up to be this proto 1980s movie fans, you know, and at the end when he's got the shotguns and the sunglasses and the Mac and everything else. I'm sort of crediting the filmmakers, I think, with far more nuance that they've actually put in there. But it actually turns out to be quite an astute observation with time. It's almost like they knew the plot of The Last Action Hero. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think even that kid. I mean, because Beverly Hills, I think it's Beverly Hills Cop Two. He had this sort of baseball jacket, wasn't it? He didn't have one in this yes. one. Um, yeah. I mean, the kid in that I, I saw it on Netflix recently, just because I was bored. And 
Yeah, I mean, the, the guy's gone, you know, the kid goes into the film with all these cliches and everything. But in this case, it is Eddie Murphy, the police officer, but that's all he does. And I suppose it's in parts of London, you could probably walk around, I don't know, Mayfair, and they have no concept of what life is like in, insert, mm. random town here. But I suppose it is that culture clash as well, that it's it's quite easy to kind of conceive, but it's difficult to get right, where you've yeah. got... You know Eddie Murphy, who's a young cop who is sort of a renegade, <laughs> to use that phrase. But you know he's yeah. he's obviously had some scrapes as a kid and used that for his advantage to become a good cop. And you've got the two guys who he tries to convince to lie about the stopping the robbers at the strip club, and they're yeah. they're too nice to accept that and say no, that's not what happened at all. Yeah, it's it, the I think they play the culture clash thing actually quite well because they they obviously lean into it that's the whole driving force of one aspect of this film but I'm so glad they don't just draw these massive lines everywhere you know that that you can't step over mm. again they're often it's the subtleties and the, the slight differences and throughout the film you learn that Rosewood is actually more like Axel is basically the sort of policeman that Rosa wants to be mm. one day, but he can't because he's in his circumstances have placed him into this bizarre little island of a place. And I've I, on that holiday we went to Beverly Hills, oh. and funnily enough, it is it is a bit like that actually. It is a bit like that because I don't. Have you ever been to Hollywood? Yeah, I have. Yeah, I mean it's a shithole, isn't it? It is. That's it's, the first. That was my first thought. It's an absolute shithole, and Beverly Hills is like this little pocket that has clearly been created for all the th- people that live in the Hollywood Hills around Hollywood. I mean, in like Hollywood itself, you can't even walk down the street, can you? It's it is rough as arseholes. Yeah, and then there's the giant Scientology church just there. Yeah. When did I go? It was about 10, 10, 11 years ago. Yeah, I mean, it's strange because you see the landmarks that you, you know, you see all the the Walk of Fame and the Chinese theatre and the Kodak theatre where they have the Oscars. And then opposite are the dingiest bars and everything Mm. closed down. There's so many homeless people. Man's Chinese theatre is a perfect example because that Mm. that really is like in a shithole. Yeah. You know that it, it's that's such a weird little sort of a, oasis of a place itself. So, so capturing that sense in the film, really, it's not it's not like an artificial construct. It's it, whereas I think a lot of films that go to inadvertent commas Hollywood, you know, they don't go to Hollywood, do they? They they basically they do just go to Beverly Hills. Yeah. <laughs> they ignore they ignore all the other stuff. But the setting is quite key to this film because it's got... That's the other thing I like about it is there is... You were saying it earlier when you were talking about Detroit and the way that opening, you know, that sort of opening 10, 15 minutes sets Detroit up really, really well. There is a very... There is a great sense of place in both aspects and it's not just... Detroit is like this, so we'll show that Beverly Hills is the complete opposite to that. It's not as heavy-handed as that. It's the film that made me want to go to Beverly Hills just to say, yeah, me and Axel Foley have both been here. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> and how many times um, were you arrested? He seemed to be arrested about three or four times. Yeah, but Bogomil in the end turned out to be a good guy. Let him off, didn't they? Yeah. Covered his tracks for him. I mean, Bogomil, I, he's barely in it, but again... For a character that's not in it very much, there's a character that has stayed with me for a hell of a long time. You know, he's he's what's the, the actor's name is something Cox, isn't it? Ro- Ronnie Cox. He was in. He's in something else. I love. Forgive me. I can't remember what it was. Robocop. Total Recall. Total Recall. Yeah. Total Recall. Um, but yeah, he, he's a good. He's a very sort of proto nineteen eighties police chief officer in many respects but then there's a bit of a redemption arc at the end and you know obviously then he becomes the driving force really for what happens in Beverly Hills Cop 2 you know he becomes the he's almost the MacGuffin in and of himself 
as part of you know and a lot of 80s films that i remember and love they they seem to revolve around maybe it is the old sort of cops and robbers thing but it, they are a lot of police driven in some way whether it's you know this or, or robocop or you know if you, you go back as far as blues brothers purely because of all the cop cars mm. um but this one does paint taggart and rosewood as you know because they're by the book they're easy to be fooled and when Foley tries to distract them because they're tailing him and he's at the hotel you know his way of doing it is by ordering a shrimp salad sandwich to their car which is waiting outside and then sneaking up and shoving a couple of bananas up the exhaust pipe yeah good evening sir the hell is that slate supper sir compliments on the axle Foley Foley how do you know we were here because I let you drive I need a couple of bananas how much are they well the buffet plate is 12.50 you get peaches, plums, oranges, and bananas. Well, all I need is a couple of bananas. Which he gets from Damon Wayans, which yeah. I thought was... <laughs> All-time great scene, that, by the way. All-time great 1980s cinema scene, that. And I won't have anybody tell me any different. And for years... Like I went into the motor trade. I was, I'm a trained mechanic. I mean, I've not done it for years and years now, but I did my apprenticeship, a trained mechanic, ended up running workshops. I never really got an answer as to whether that is actually... That is a genuine thing that would happen because the only time I ever broached it, and it was it was with a couple of other lads, we were of the agreement that it just... Because of the force going through the exhaust without getting too nerdish about it, a banana just wouldn't have the actual density to be able to stand up to it. So I'm genuinely not... I, I, I still watch that scene back and always think the same thing. I wonder if that would happen. I wonder if that would work. Well, but, I, I thought yeah. that as well. Because I, I thought, I mean, you'd shove a banana up there and it would just send out a very hot, messy banana. Exactly, yeah. And if it did any damage, it might do to the inside of the pipe and it wouldn't work that quickly. No. I mean, the thing is, you could go and find a pebble, chuck a pebble, a few handful of pebbles up there, something like that. Mm. A banana just seems to be the worst possible <laughs> construction material to achieve your goal here. But as I said, as a fully trained mechanic, I cannot confirm or deny. My gut feeling is that it, I mean, on an old style exhaust where you didn't have a cat and it was a straight through, you may have stood a fighting chance if you jammed it right up there properly and probably if the car was running so it was it was hot straight away if mm. if it was if you got a blast of heat through there it would just blow them out the back i think so anyway enough about bananas in exhaust pipes <laughs> and that's not a euphemism that that's my other podcast <laughs> <laughs> but i think that the other thing i think is worth just talking about is that we've already touched on chunks of this script being improvised it really does film like when you watch it, it does feel like there's a maybe even as much as two thirds of the scenes are literally just about getting from A to B. And again, I I wonder how much of a, I mean, who is improvising and who is who is following the script? Do you think Bogomil and Bogomil's lines are definitely on script? Do you think yeah. the sort of triumvirate at the head of it are probably improvising? I mean, Paul Reese's every time he's in it i'm assuming that's all improvisation as well it seems to be because you know in the part where we're in the police station back in detroit he's only in it for a very small time and it's the oh that's that's not my locker you know yeah. when he's when he's getting torn a new one by the inspector i've never seen so many cops in one place um <laughs> cl- clearly austerity hasn't hit 1984 detroit <laughs> but i mean how wonderful to have a film where you can just drop paul reeser in for like <laughs> three minutes to be very very funny and yeah. then disappear that's what a wonderful situation to be in to go back to the avengers again i was thinking this about various avengers films how wonderful it is just to put paul rudd into your movie for 20 yeah. minutes and then disappear off and think well oh well i'm happy now because i've seen paul rudd to be fair he seems to be reverse aging as well so he could probably still be in this somewhere he's 50 years old isn't oh, yeah. he i mean that that I'm pulling this carcass of a body round a five-a-side pitch on a Monday night, and honestly, I'm I'm struggling for breath from kickoff, and he's out there at fifty years old 
you know, knocking films like Endgame out and looking like he's still in his mid-twenties. It's not fair, mate, is it? Really? No, I mean, I'm frequently heard uttering I'm too old for this shit when I sort of finish a night shift and drag my arse home and then have the kids all day. And it's like, fucking hell. <laughs> We're but, all too old for this shit, though, aren't we? That's the problem. Yeah, but then I suppose, was it Clueless? He, I mean, he was in that. He didn't look any bloody different. That, I mean, that's 25 years old now or something. Yeah, well, they just they had like a sort of mini reunion for something recently, didn't they? And to yeah. be fair, that entire cast has has aged phenomenally. They've um, all got paintings of themselves in the attic. That lot. <laughs> they were that was set in Beverly Hills, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 How they have not seen that film for a dog for a dog's age? I think they're showing it at the um, Somerset House doing a, a film four screening thing in the summer. Yeah, um, well, it's sure. being remade as well, isn't it? I think. Oh Jesus! I think that yeah, they're doing a some sort of ultra hip remake, which will lose the actual essence of what it was supposed to be. But anyway, how have we ended up moaning about the remake of Clueless, <laughs> which hasn't been made or released yet? Yeah, <laughs> fucking um, Paul Rudd gets everywhere. The the other thing I wanted I wanted to talk about some length about is the shootout at the end. Yeah. A, I love it. So I'm going to say that before I I start to pull it apart and criticise it. But B, in all the times I've watched this film, I have never got the geography of that house or those gardens sort of right in my head. I still don't understand how there are flat bits, sheer walls, then it looks like it's a garden full of step terraces, then there's like a load of sort of corridors... It's just it's it's about four houses in one, isn't it? Yeah, but then when the same house was used in Commando, Schwarzenegger approached it in a rubber dinghy. So who knows? <laughs> you know what I mean, though, because the way they approach the house, there's obviously a wall, but they get when when they actually go in, then it's like a series of terraces, isn't it? Yeah. Basically, and you get Taggart trying to get over the wall and all that sort of thing, <laughs> and then Axel. Axel seems to get to the top in no time at all. So where Rosewood and Taggart are having to sort of fight their way up the levels and hide at various points behind walls, behind like ornate garden vases and various other things, Axel just seems to have found the shortcut. I don't know if he's gone round the front door <laughs> or something, but it's just, I've never ever understood the geography of that house. It does give us the scene of, of Rosewood and Taggart trying to get in, though, which is just slapstick silly, but but worth it. I think yeah. it's strange, um, and I know whether it's one of these because every house is unique, you don't get many that are the same. Um, whoever designed that one must have just been on a pretty much a bender the night before. Because <laughs> um, then you've got, you know, everyone's on a different level. So all the shooting is either coming from, you know, the goons with their machine guns above... And I suppose it makes life a little bit easier to film. But, but I mean, even you know, from seeing Commando and the house there, and I obviously don't want to dwell too much on that. I did a whole podcast with Terry about that one. But just the whole geography of it and ignoring the stupid stuff about the boat and the underground bit where <laughs> Schwarzenegger kills Bennett. It's just strange. And, of course, because it's an 80s house where the ultimate shootout takes place, it's fully, it's on full CCTV the gates are there it's all very sort of it just seems like it's perfectly designed because if it was a i suppose a flat three level mansion not that i have much experience of them it would probably be quite dull but um even inside the house foley seems to know his way around enough to to get by yeah well this this is it he gets into the house every time he needs a corner to duck behind there is conveniently a corner he can he can jump behind at one point, I think there's a dinner table fully made up for dinner because we all keep our knives and forks and plates and everything out. Of but it, it's just... I really like the shootout because it feels... I'm, when I was a kid, I remember watching it for the first sort of four or five times. And I'll confess, I think the first time I saw this film, I think I watched it all the way through twice and then I watched the basically the shootout at the end probably four or five times you know just kept rewinding it and watching it again and I like it because there is a tension to it but at no point do you ever feel like the good guys aren't going to win and I don't know if that is cutting it with a little bit of slapstick with Taggart and Rosewood throughout 
or what really but it I still I still like the sort of framing of that shootout despite knowing that there are parts of it that don't really make sense I still really enjoy it you know I wouldn't change basically if you if you remade this film tomorrow I wouldn't change a frame of that <laughs> of no. the, the the final act really and Jenny at this point has become like the damsel in distress and Maitland is, is keeping her hostage basically and he fights his way through. It was quite shocking to see a hero get shot like that. Do you know what I mean by that? Because a lot of 80s films, the, the protagonist, the hero, is often this untouchable, doesn't feel pain, doesn't get shot, doesn't get hurt. Hundred bad guys unloading machine gun round after machine gun round in their direction and not one hits. So I actually quite like the fact that he does get shot and he does get hurt and it you know it does make a difference to how the the final scene plays out and you know there's the blood on the wall that you know he follows. Is it what's his name? Is it Zach? Uh, what the the goon? Yeah, the guy. Yeah, the he, guy from Breaking Bad. Yeah, he's yeah. basically only got about eight lines of dialogue in the whole film hasn't he it didn't say much I mean he called Eddie Murphy cuz just before he got thrown across the buffet in the uh, the stuffy club yeah but he's he's again he's a very hateable bad guy and I mean that like with the greatest respect that's that's a good thing in that role the other thing that I think is quite impressive is that obviously that is the one time where Eddie Murphy plays it completely straight, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, you know, the whole shootout, because, like you said, the slapstick, the comedy comes from Rosewood and Taggart, so it's quite, things are flipped around. And to be fair to Eddie Murphy, it's absolutely perfect. You absolutely believe he's doing what he's doing, you, you know, there's absolutely no point, what problem whatsoever. Community, that's where I remember him from. Oh. That's where I remember. Not Breaking Bad. I remember him from Community. Sorry, oh, just yeah. thinking about Zach. What was? <laughs> I can't remember the actor's name, but he was definitely in Community. Jonathan Banks. We we mentioned him briefly. He was. Uh, he had one of the roles in the Control Tower in Airplane. Did he? Yeah, he was. Oh God, what was his character's name? And that was it Henderson, or he was the really sort of grumpy, sarcastic guy when the plane was coming in to land, and he was like, ah, oh, it's all going wrong. Jesus, the amount of times I've seen that film, and I've never, ever clocked that that's him. Yeah, that's Gun- Gunderson, that was it. That's incredible. I've never, ever clocked that was him. I mean, Airplane, I've seen an amount of times again, I would be beyond embarrassed to admit. <laughs> no, I, I've just, just come to me then. Yeah. He's in Community. I can't remember the name of his character. Have you watched Community? I think I watched all of it. I, I think I sort of dropped out maybe towards the end of it. But yeah, I watched most of it. Well, that was exactly the right thing to do because, yeah. like the the end of it, I, I watched it all, and it very nearly ruins the start of it. To what? be honest with okay. you, okay. So so don't. <laughs> yeah, I don't go back to. I can't it. remember where I, where it was. I dropped out. I I remember watching it. It was on. I can't remember how, but um, yeah. And at some point, I f- it it wasn't really even a deliberate thing. It was just one of those I I lost track of which channel it was on and something like that. And to be honest, it was one of those that I never really managed to catch up with. And and time has moved on. But yeah. But the the other aspect of the shootout, just to go back to mm. it as well, that is for me like sort of almost quintessentially eighties action hero. Is that obviously Eddie Murphy is wandering around with a pistol, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And like everybody else has got shotguns, machine guns, pistols like that are three times the size of Eddie Murphy's, and he just keeps popping them off one after the other, doesn't he? I think he's. I think there's one time he reloads in the <laughs> in the whole. I mean, I don't know how there must. Yeah, be... it's when he's been shot, isn't it? Yeah. When he's when he's injured and he's in the kitchen and he has to sort of scramble away and leaves the blood trail up the wall. He's trying to reload his gun, isn't he? Yeah, and we do get the part where Rosewood and Taggart are sort of talk, like they're sort of in. It looks like they're in dire straits, and all of a sudden, Judge Reinhold starts talking about. Do you remember the ending of Butch Cassidy? Yeah, of course, most people know exactly where how that ended. Yeah, and he yeah he's reloading his gun at the time, isn't he? They're yeah. lying either side of that wall, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's it's again, I just I think that's actually quite a clever. 
it's quite a clever way to play it, to flip it. So, like I say, the, the two straighter leads of the three suddenly become the comic relief and Axel Foley becomes the the serious driving action character. I think I don't think again, I do not credit in any way Simpson Brockheimer and it was Martin Brest, wasn't it, who directed yeah. it? I don't credit them with any of this nuance. It's but, absolutely accidental. Yeah. But it, it just it's another thing that that makes that just makes the film work, and I mean it was a phenomenal success, wasn't it? This mm. film, I yeah. mean, it was like it was made on, it was made for peanuts, and it did like nearly, was it about three hundred and fifty million at the box office, something like that. Yeah, and you think about, I suppose in, in those days it wasn't like now where every film has become part of a franchise or anything. You know, I mean, this did spawn two sequels. You know, for for a film that really, I suppose you could have had it not worked. It would have just sat there on the on the shelf and been shown on Channel Five every so often. But I mean, it even got nominated for Oscar. What for? It was um, best screenplay or best original screenplay. I think it was. Which is incredible when you think that at least two thirds of this film was improvised. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, you kind of look at it now and you think had it been with anyone else in the main role it, it wouldn't have been the same you know Martin Brest obviously went on to do the great midnight run before mm. his career hit a very abrupt skid when was it Gigli Gigli yeah that was the Ben Affleck one he got to be to be fair to him with that film without going too nerdy he got mm. it was a bad film but it got completely overshadowed by Ben Affleck basically happening around it and just destroying it because I remember listening to Kevin Smith talking about it because obviously they went from Jiggly on to Jersey Girl and he he's he sort of felt eternally sorry for the circumstances because Jersey Girl was it sort of forever in Benefer's shadow and it ruined mm. its release but it didn't get half the flack that Jiggly did which was I mean it was have you seen it yeah, a long time ago. It's just so but, slow. Just nothing happens. Wasn't that the the? It's turkey time. Huh? Gobble gobble. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's not good. It's not good. But yeah, I was just looking it up then. Made for fifteen million dollars, and it took three hundred and sixteen million. Which, I mean, in nineteen eighty four, that's phenomenal money, isn't it? That's a lot of bearer bonds. <laughs> <laughs> I miss, I, I've talked about this before, but I really miss, this is what I think cinema is missing a little bit these days. These films that, I don't know, what would the equivalent be now? Maybe sort of 50 to $75 million. Hmm. And they're no longer than sort of an hour and three quarters at the very most, including credits. And they come and they go and they're good and they make their money back and not everything has to launch a franchise not everything has to be part of a cinematic universe not everything has to be sort of layered in this that and the other i i miss the sort of simplicity of a film that chucks you in from the first 30 seconds and leaves you at the end going well i thoroughly enjoyed that you know i was i'm aware of all its faults but i'm perfectly fine to spend two hours doing that again tomorrow if i could I did read something last year, and I'm terrible at this, but um, and it was about the movie industry and how it's changed now, and that you have before that the big pictures would prop up the medium ones, mm. and and you don't really get that so much. So you get you know the studios will bring out these huge giant films, and obviously now most of them are owned by Disney, and then you'll get your smaller independent ones under the guise of a big studio which get released but you don't get that sort of medium range budget ones so much anymore no. whereas you know this would be a prime example you know it's not it's not a small film but it wasn't a big huge tentpole release it just happened to do really well because it's so good and it caught on but again it's I mean even if you look at the poster of this film again it's that charisma of Eddie Murphy just bleeding from this one sheet and all he's doing is just sitting on the bonnet of a car if memory serves holding a gun yeah, and I think the second one, isn't he just leaning against a palm tree or something like that? The simplicity of it is what drives this film in almost every sense, and it and it works. And what you're saying about the movie industry there, I, I really do miss it. The closest I've come recently is I watched 
a Gerard Butler film, and that's always a stamp of quality. <laughs> um, but a Gerard Butler film called Hunter Killer. As somebody who's sort of like quite an avid Empire reader, and you know, I'm constantly on Twitter following various movie accounts. I'm constantly mm-hmm. on YouTube watching trailers, etc. It had just completely passed me by this film. I, Is that the know, one with Gary Oldman? Yeah, and yeah. it's a submarine film. And the thing was, it, I actually really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it because it felt, I don't know, not that there was a lack of consequence, but it somehow still felt inconsequential, if you know what I mean. It's not... It it, 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 it takes like a ridiculous premise. It, ta- it basically takes sort of like The Hunt for Red October... Crimson Tide and every other submarine film you've seen smashes them all together but then chucks in like another action film on top of it happening on land mm. and it's just and it and it made me think of this sort of genre of films because it again it, the sub don't get me wrong the submarine bits and what have you are completely convincing but you think well that's one set they've just got to build you know a, a submarine interior Exterior's all done CGI, and then the action that takes place on land is fairly straightforward. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing major going on, and it just made me think of this genre of film because you think, well, that's made, that's probably taken, I don't know, may have made a hundred million overall, but I bet it only cost fifty, sixty million to make Top Whack, yeah. and it, it's, I, I often think that like, even as a, somebody who's a massive comic book geek. Even I sort of look at things like the MCU and how they've sort of distorted the movie world and how, like, if you don't make ten times your budget and if you're not getting a billion dollars off your comic book film, it's considered a failure. Like, I don't know, I don't think the change is for good because we are missing, I think, not not just films like this, I think we're missing performances like this. You know, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of actors out there and stars out there who are in TV and, and carving out perfectly good TV careers. But it with those films, it, that sort of smaller budget films that sit in that little pocket, that there were so many star-making turns came from. You know, I mean, we're looking at one of the ultimate ones here, but there's many, many more. And I, I, I miss that. I miss that mid-range, but never mind. Again, so we've covered what community, movie <laughs> industry as a whole. Talked about yeah. Beverly Hills Cop, excellent, yeah. Gerard Butler tick. Yeah. Yes. Well, I do wonder, like, I mean, we talked about this on on some other episodes where you're now starting to get TV series of old films. I mean, Lethal Weapons probably the the prime example. Now, I, I've never seen the TV show Lethal Weapon, but ITV was showing it quite recently like what I remember quite a prime time slot it was like a Friday evening mm. and I think did it have one of the Wayans yeah, clan in there somewhere I have never seen an episode of this TV mm. series but for my sins because of some of the podcasts I listen to like Kevin Smith Jason Mews absolutely loves it it's one of his favourite TV series all time okay. so I've sort of gained a little bit of information about it via osmosis and one of the things that it's just been cancelled actually and I think they've done either three series or four series Mm. but it started with one of the Wayans and another actor who I can't remember their name and from their very first day on set they've hated each other (laughs) there's been constant fallouts and all sorts so this is all documented like um, and then eventually it got to a point where they just couldn't continue to work with each other and they kept Damon Wayans because he was the bigger star and they considered the the other guy I think absolutely trashed Wayans in the press Jeez. absolutely went to town so they bought in for the last series Sean William Scott Stifler Stifler <laughs> Yeah, and that, but then I think they also had to replace Damon Wayans about halfway through so mm. not having seen an episode I have no idea if they were playing Riggs and Murtar and if they then changed or what, I've no idea, or if they just literally just dropped a different actor into the same role. Well I've just you looked know. up on IMDb, so Damon Wayans played Roger Murtar right. um, and someone called Clayne Crawford That's him. was yeah. was Riggs and then Stifler was someone called Wesley Cole Yeah. 
other people with Murtos surname. But well, I assume yeah. Wayne's leaving is the thing that has finally killed it, right? Yeah, because I mean, I'm assuming he's that he was carrying the sort of bulk of the. But yeah, you it, there is definitely a world where Axel Foley exists on TV, isn't there? Mm. And again, going back to what you're saying, it's that sort of star turn, and you wonder how many people or how many people who are on the cusp of you know huge, whether it's stand-up careers or TV careers. I guess it's harder to get from stand-up into these films now, but oh, kind of look at Eddie Murphy being, you know, he was huge in the eighties. Yeah. B- before Doctor Doolittle and was it Norbit that fucking thing? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, but you know, I mean, the the hits he had in the eighties and before he knocked up one of the Spice Girls, I think. But, uh, yeah, that was that was a weird little chapter, wasn't it? I still don't. I still, if I'm honest, I still don't really know what, what happened there. I mean, don't get. Me, I understand the mechanics. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but yeah, but I, I'm just looking at his his run through the '80s, and 48 Hours was his first film, then Trading Places, then Beverly Hills Cop, then Beverly Hills Cop Two, then Coming to America. That's that's a hell of a run, isn't it? Really. That's not bad, and you think you look at the eighties, and you know certainly from a, a male actor point of view. I mean, I suppose Harrison Ford was probably when you look at his eighties, and you probably think, yeah, that's not a bad CV. I mean, Eddie Murphy's was, yeah, uh, if not the equal. Then. I mean, there was Golden Child in there as well. Which that, is yeah, that was eighty eighty eight something like that. But then, like, to what? When was Harlem Nights out? Was that nineties or eighties? Because it was the nineties where he blotted his copybook really because that's when like I mean Beverly Hills Cop 3 is just I I mean I can't still to this day I can't believe that that was actually directed by John Landis I mean it's, <laughs> it's just a remarkably bad ill-conceived film on every single level but then like Boomerang was was a big flop when it was supposed to be you know his next his they were hoping to spin all sorts off the back of that. Mm. There was a dreadful vampire film he was in. I can't even remember uh, was the name the of Vampire in Brooklyn, I think that was. It could be. Yeah. It could be. And then he Oh, there was another action film as well. Metro. Metro, where I think he was something like a bomb disposal expert. <laughs> that was in the nineties. That was when he really I don't know. I I don't necessarily think he was taking roles for the money either. I think it was just. I think he, his quality control was just all over the place. Like, and he he just kept taking the wrong roles. I mean, I watched with Bo, my daughter, The Nutty Professor again recently, and that is a stunningly bad film. You know, it it really is. I mean, even Bo halfway through. She's eight years old and she loves films. And even her halfway through, she was just bored, stupid, oh. absolutely bored, witless by it. So yeah, it's a it's a shame really because you think when you think of Eddie Murphy in Trading Place, you think in Forty Eight Hours, do you think of him in this? Just so much like potential, charisma, energy, excitement, and then yeah, it, it really has gone a little bit off the rails hasn't it to be honest his career luckily we'll always have these to remember (laughs) yeah Yeah. and of course coming to America too oh god I forgot about that yeah isn't that his son or something yeah it's going to be his son but what was the last film you remember watching him in I honestly can't remember was it uh, might have been a Shrek maybe One one of the Shreks did he do a really bad film with Ben Stiller about a uh, the t- a, Tower Heist? Yes, they something the, like that. They nicked yeah. the car out of a tower. Uh, yeah, yeah, and he was the burglar, wasn't he? He was the criminal because I think the rest of them weren't criminals or something, and they needed a they right. needed some advice or something and went to him. I think that's. I mean, it's just it. Finishing like this has just made me feel a bit sad. <laughs> Well, let, let's go back and let, let's let's reminisce at how great this film was. And I'm sure at some point when I get round to editing this, this will have all sorts of clips and Axel F will be playing at all sorts from you know, like they did in the film. It transitions from one scene into another, 
And yeah. then as we transition from Eddie Murphy to Gerard Butler or something like that, we'll have a bit of extra left. <laughs> I quite like, right, confession, I actually quite like Gerard Butler films. I like some of them, and I remember watching, what was the one I'd remember having a soft spot? Law Abiding Citizen. That was just that... a piss take, it was like a piss take of Taken or something like that. Yes, and yeah. Jamie Foxx in it, I think. I quite, I, the, the more serious a film he's in takes itself, the more I like it because the less in reality the less serious it is if you've ever seen those Fallen films uh, the White House one and then there's uh, there's one in London I've seen the first one yeah yeah tremendously serious it's a very serious business throughout and I've got a lot of respect for that I think I've got the, the London one I think it was on Channel 5 quite recently I think I've recorded it and uh, yeah, I, just, yeah. I should spoil myself yeah spoil yourself with a bit of Jerry yeah Gerald Butler podcast. There must be one somewhere. Yeah. Well, there's a Jason Statham one, isn't there? So yeah. There must be a Jerry Butler one. God, imagine being the budget Jason Statham. <laughs> Funnily enough, I have literally, in the last couple of days, just watched The Meg. Oh, really? It, yeah. It is a incredible film on lots of levels, and I will leave it at that. Okay. Well, I, yeah, I recorded that. I think that was on Sky last week. Or I think I recorded that, so... I'll have to yeah, God. it is utterly mad. And uh, weirdly, of all the things that you know, and I've said before about some some of the ways I try and entice my wife into watching these films, and she saw the trailer for the Meg and went, "Oh my God, that looks dreadful!" Oh, is that Dwight from the Office? Yes, and that was well. Not- actually, he <laughs> genuinely he's actually good in it. Yeah, he's very good in it. But it is it is an extraordinary film. There are one or two leaps of logic. <laughs> Which, yeah, which are precisely that. And it's... Jason Statham is very Jason Statham throughout. He doesn't... If you think Eddie Murphy is playing Eddie Murphy in this film, (laughs) Jason Statham is playing Jason Statham in that film. He doesn't lift a leg throughout. You wouldn't want anything different, would you? No, no. no. But no, it's, it's... I enjoyed it. Will I watch it again? No, never. It's no chores. Yeah. Thank God. Anyway, David, well, that was um, that was Beverly Hills Cop, finally. Um, episode 50 in the can. Now, I did stumble across the name, horribly and embarrassingly, the name of your new podcast earlier, because we talked about one of your other projects on the Rocky Four episode. But um, your new podcast, Beyond the Touchline, um, I've retweeted and I've shared a few of the episodes, and I'm... I've listened to the first two, and as the time of recording, we're at episode three. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that for for anyone who might be interested? Yeah, beyond the beyond the touchline is a podcast which everybody stumbles over the name, me more than anyone, because in my working life, I have produced a book called Beyond the Turnstiles, so I'm forever calling my own podcast by the by the wrong name. So don't worry about that. But it basically it came from a conversation with Seb and, and Dennis where we realised that often football is the least interesting part of football and we wanted to sort of create a podcast that leans a little bit into that and there's there's been various podcasts that have looked at various aspects of, of football culture but we're sort of taking a we're taking a monthly look at something that interests us more than anything so the the first we wanted to look at the damn united and the comparisons between the film and the book because it's it's you know the book is sort of become a bit of a set text and the the film i think is quite interesting in what they lift from the book and what they leave and then um the second episode was i can't this is awful i can't remember what was the second episode tv Yes, Goal TV, yeah, which was a wonderful night of um, television in 1994 that BBC Two had quite clearly planned to lead into the World Cup and England's glorious opening fixture against whoever, and then we failed to qualify, so they ran it anyway. And we just work our way chronologically through it, and it's uh, that was great, actually, because I got to watch lots of things uh, that I haven't seen for years and years in the process of doing that and then this this month's episode we're actually looking at um basically our favorite sort of football comic characters and strips that aren't roy the rovers um at some point we we will cover roy the rovers and the reboot and everything but um 
we'll sort of do it in our own way at some point. We we yeah, we wanted to look at the world outside of Roy. Um and we go into like there'll be various you remember and some you may never have heard of. But for listeners of this podcast that might be potentially of interest, uh next month's episode is revisiting Mike Bassett, Oof. which is a film that gets unfairly maligned in my view and was hamstrung by one of the worst marketing campaigns in history, but is actually, on reflection, quite good. So expect me to be fairly positive about it. I think that film got a bit of a, a revisiting when Sam Allardyce was named England manager, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's the All the marketing, including the DVD cover, makes it out to be some like lowbrow... Uh, ridiculously simplistic comedy, and when you actually watch it again, it's it's poking fun at, at the in the right places. You know, it's actually quite it's far more intelligent than people give it credit for, and it goes in looks at lots of themes of sort of Englishness and various other things. So, yeah, um, but we've got loads of stuff lined up, and films are obviously quite a big world for us. We've we're going to at some point approach when Saturday comes. Which is just, I for me personally, genuinely one of the most dreadful uses of two hours I've ever put my life to. And let me tell you, I've wasted my time on some dross. But I detest that film. But we are going to cover that. We're also going to do. There's only one Jimmy Grimble. Yeah. Which I don't know if you've seen that film, but I love that film. That's almost the polar opposite of When Saturday Comes. And at some point, we will cover, of course, Escape to Victory. But oh. that will take a great deal of research and a great deal of looking into. Yeah, that, that's far more than just a film, that is. That's a, a whole movement. It's a generation, yeah. that film. <laughs> um, well, one thing I was going to mention, because um, are, are you planning on doing um, Fever Pitch at any point? Yes, okay. yes we are. So um, we're, I was looking at doing that for one of the bonus episodes, because I was going to do some films that were set in the 80s. And yeah. obviously being an Arsenal fan that part of the 80s kind of sticks quite nicely in my head but um yeah it was um i guess that was an odd and i won't go into too much now but i mean that was a a film very much how do we get the name fever pitch onto a film turn it into a romantic comedy based around the works of alan smith and michael thomas yeah well um dave thank you very much for coming back and Look forward to having you back on for some of the other episodes we had lined up. Now, when this film came out in the UK, it was the 25th of January 1985. Now, the number one song at the time of the film's release was I Want to Know What Love Is. Chew. Yes. Finally. That's actually decent. We've had a good run of these songs recently where I haven't taken out the Michael Jackson ones. Yeah. <laughs> Bloody hell. <laughs> But, uh, anyway, Dave, thanks very much. No problem, mate. Loved it. I'll speak to you soon. This podcast was brought to you by executive producers Gary West, Fergus Higginson, Keith Foster, Jimmy Fletcher, Mark Drakes, associate producer Chris Oakley. You can find out more by visiting patreon.com forward slash Betamax Video Club.